Hello, lovely, and welcome back to another episode of Life Coach BFF Show. If you're new here, I'm Heather Petty, and I am lucky enough to be the host of this show. Today, I have a special guest who's not only a seasoned news anchor and journalist, but also the author of the gripping book, Down the Hill. I'm thrilled to peel back the layers and for you to get to know the human side of my friend, my favorite news anchor, the incredible Susan Hendricks. So let's get started. Life Coach BFF Show with me, your friend Heather, because we all need a BFF to take this journey called Life With. This is a podcast for midlife women who want to remain sane and find joy while parenting teens. We're living with purpose and determination to get all the goody out of life because I believe God made the goody for His people, you and me. So hop aboard this train of intention, come and sit on my porch and rest or pop in your earbuds and let's take a walk together. I'm just so grateful you're here. Susan's book, Down the Hill, delves into the tragic story of Abby and Libby, two young souls whose lives were cut short in Delphi, Indiana in 2017. Today, we'll discuss why Susan felt compelled to tell their story and the impact it has had on her personally and professionally. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Susan. Welcome to Life Coach BFF. It's so good to be here, Heather, and great to see you and, and connect a little. Last I uh, spoke to you and, and saw you, um, your book had just come out. So it's so great to reconnect. Oh, thank you. And now your book is out and I am beyond excited about your book. But before we dive into Down the Hill, let's talk a little bit about your family. Yeah, and I do discuss my family in this book. I know it's about... Uh, a specific crime. It's a true crime book, but really it's about the families and uh, how we're all similar in terms of, of connecting. So having a daughter, she's 13 now, and my son is seven. I covering different uh, array of crime stories at CNN and would come home and have to really compartmentalize, um, especially when they were younger. And certainly now there's things I have to keep from them or I want to keep from them. But my son is Jack. He's seven years old. He's just a bundle of love, always happy, saying the funniest things, a little bit of a lisp. I always do his voice. He's like, mama, you're great. And then the 13 year old, <laughs> but then I remember myself being 13. She really doesn't talk to me much. I'll say, how was school today? Fine. Oh, what was your favorite part? English. So it's, it's very limited. <laughs> So much, but I, I don't take it personally or try not to, because I think of myself and my sister at 13 and we were the same way with my mom. So it's a phase. And because my son's so young and still in that phase, maybe it doesn't hurt so much. Yes. Yes. And you just, you want to enjoy them for as long as you can, because 12, that's that age. They become mm -hmm. prickly, don't they? At 12. So that's <laughs> yeah. typical. They're, your book is about the murders that took place in Delphi, Indiana in 2017. Can you share with us what initially drew you to the story of Abby Williams and Libby German and what compelled you to write this book, Susan? 
Well, as a reporter, that's where I started in California at a local news station there. You come in every day and they give you an assignment, the assignment editor, and you go out and you do that story for that day. Usually they like to have you what's called in the field. Even if the story has passed, let's say that a fire occurred and everyone's gone, they want you to stand in front of there. Um, just to be out there in the mix as a reporter, that's where I started. Then going to CNN, I did more anchoring. And it is reporting on the set, but it's it's very different. You're not really there and, and it, you feel a sort of um, separate from the story in certain ways. In 2019, I was sent there as an assignment with CNN saying, we're sending you to Delphi, Indiana. And a colleague of mine, Brian said, Susan, do you remember the story there with the girl who recorded that man's voice? And then it came back to me because two years prior, when the story first broke, I did cover it on the set in 2017. I covered it the day of his breaking news that these two girls were mm -hmm. missing in Delphi, Indiana. I remembered it was in the middle of the day, 13 and 14 years old, and they were missing. And you don't think much of it, meaning that they, they could come back, the story could develop into to really nothing, that they wandered off. The next day, their bodies were found, February 14th, 2017. I was on the set that day, and I interviewed the man who owns the property where Abby and Libby's bodies were found. His name, Ronald Logan. In my ear, we usually, we have earpieces, and they're called IFBs as an anchor, and the producer can talk to you in the control room, in your ear. So during the commercial break, they said, we got Ron Logan. Sometimes you know who the interview is, if it's planned ahead of time. Breaking news, not so much. So the booker, the producer will get that specific person, and then you only have maybe a minute or two. Um, and they said, we have Ronald Logan. He owns the property where the bodies were found. Susan, we're up in one minute. So he came oh. on, he could hear us, and I did the live shot with him. He said, of course, it was terrible. Nothing like this had ever happened there. Delphi, Indiana, a town of less than 3,000 people. I mean, extremely small, tiny, tight-knit. Well, it was just devastating for the entire town that the girls' bodies were found, and they had no idea what had happened. Of course, the authorities saying we suspect foul play, but that's all we're saying. And throughout this investigation, there were rumors and names that had come up, but no one was ever charged with the murders until close to six years later when that occurred. So let's go back to that specific day. After I interviewed Ron Logan, um, I remember hearing what Libby, one of the girls, the 14-year-old, recorded on that bridge, and that was chilling. She hit record, and her grandfather has told me through the years, Mike Patty, um, you know, Susan, I really think that Libby was going to come home and say, hey, Grandpa, look at this creepy guy we saw on the bridge. Isn't that weird? Well, she hit record, and you hear his voice. You see him walking towards them in the video. His face is kind of blurry, his head down, hands in his pockets. She recorded that. She kept recording. She put her phone in her pocket and continued to walk. Then you hear what police believe was the killer's voice directing them to that specific area where their bodies were found. I remember that day, Susan. And so I want to ask you this, as an anchor, when you receive this notification in your earpiece, you're about to make the announcement, how do you maintain composure? That's a good question. I think it's um, practice. It's what you're used to doing. So I, I feel comfortable um, behind a camera. And I do mention that in the book. It's my shield. It's my comfort zone. It's wherever you're most comfortable almost a way to talk about other people's stories, to share it with the audience. I feel in a way safe there. 
And for five years, I was on Anderson Cooper's news program called AC 360. And he had, it, it played at two particular hours every night and I did news updates. Well, I was also on standby if any breaking news had occurred. And uh, there was a shooting and they said, Susan, get to the, the set. And they were in my ear. This is what happened. You're going to speak to this person. They're in this room. And the producing is fabulous there, by the way. And this is his name, Go. So when breaking news occurs, you're asking what someone at home would ask. Right. So it, it's a different kind of interview, of course, meaning, you know, prep beforehand, you're asking them to tell you what had happened. So that was similar to Ron Logan in how are you feeling? What do you think? He had two sons and said, it could have been my boys. Mm -hmm. They went down in that area all the time. Right. And that was my initial thought when the story broke was this could be my children. I mean, that's why I wondered, how did you maintain composure? Because when I hear things that are that shocking and that sad, you automatically take that emotion on as a mom, I think. It's compartmentalizing. And luckily I got extremely good at it. I, I think yeah. that you have to um, be able to kind of put that away or to the side. I'm not saying it's the most healthy thing to do and eventually it catches up with you as it did with me with this particular story. Because when I was sent there and I met um, Libby's grandmother, Becky, I met Mike, I met Kelsey, her sister, who dropped the girls off at the bridge that day. And going mm -hmm. back, they were off from school. It was a Monday afternoon. It was a makeup snow day in Indiana. And uh, Abby and Libby had a sleepover at Libby's. And they ran down and said, hey, Kelsey, can you drive us to Monon High Bridge? It was connected to a trail that the kids would go on and walk on and they take pictures on this bridge. And Kelsey told me she thought to herself, look, I've said no to Libby a lot lately. I should be a nice sister. I should say yes. She said, okay, I have to go to work. I'll drop you off, uh, but I can't pick you up. You have to text dad. And that was it. She dropped them off that day. I was in the car with her. Kelsey took me on that same ride just a few minutes from her home. And she told me what song was playing, her favorite song. The windows were down. She waved goodbye. And that was the last time she ever saw her sister and Abby again. Oh, my goodness. That's terrible. So the title of your book, Down the Hill, carries a certain weight, Susan. Can you explain the significance behind it and how it encapsulates the essence of the story? Yeah, we called it Down the Hill, and it's my descent into the double murder in Delphi. It's kind of... Um, speaking to how involved I really did get. And down the hill was what Libby recorded on her cell phone, that the killer, authorities believe it was the killer's voice, saying, guys, down the hill, directing them where to go. And uh, that's why we called it that, what they were instructed to do. And that particular day, what Libby captured on that phone, the families are hoping is the evidence that really is enough to convict. And just for the families to hear their loved one's voice or know what they heard on that phone and to think about the fear that Abby and Libby must have felt at the time is excruciating for them. And I was witness to that. I was so lucky that they shared their stories with me and I felt fortunate to be there and to listen to them and found strength within their stories. How did you build this relationship with the victim's families? It started, uh, 
as an assignment to be assigned to go there. I, I did remember the story. There's so many that we cover day to day, as you know, the news cycle. It's what's this day? What's that day? Or what crime is that? Which one's this? But when you're there and you really look the family members in the eye and you meet them and you're welcomed into their homes, uh, Becky and Mike cook spaghetti. Uh, for me, a producer and two photojournalists were sitting around their kitchen table exactly where Libby was before that fateful day. I was there in 2019, so two years ago. They showed me video of Libby laughing in the kitchen exactly where I was sitting, saying we missed the laughter, we missed the energy. So to be uh -huh. able to go into their homes, and they wanted to tell the story because no one was arrested, no one was caught. Mind you, it was two years later that I was there and still no one in custody, less than 3,000 people. Libby recorded the voice and his walk. Hard to make out the face though, he wore a puffy blue jacket at the time. So Libby did her part, Mike said, we owe her this. So it was Libby's family that decided this is how we're going to do it. It helps give us strength. They had a flyer of a sketch, they would hand that out. Abby's family, and they said this right away. And uh, Mike was nice enough during the early press conference, I believe it was March 7th, where he stood up and he said, hi, I'm Mike Patty, I'm Libby's grandfather. And he said, I'd like to read a letter from Abby's family saying, we respect Libby's family for handling it their way, we handle it our way. So they didn't do as many interviews as Libby's mm -hmm. family. And people deal with it differently. You may think you may be a certain way and then, Hopefully it doesn't happen. If it does, who knows how you'll react and different people react to shock and grief and trauma differently. That is so true. That's so true. And this book touches on the profound impact the case has had on the Delphi community and the broader American heartland. Can you elaborate on the ways in which this tragedy has shaped and changed this town? It's a tiny town. So town. what impact it couldn't be nicer, uh, the locals there. And I'm sure it wasn't easy to have all of the media gather in your small town. I mean, they were there when I first arrived in 2019, it was February. I went back in April of that same year for a press conference that was shocking. And I'll get to that. But so when I first arrived, I would say it was just us there. Uh, you know, they had done a few stories. As the case went on, as time went on, and no one was in custody, and uh, people started to wonder why, and the, the case gained traction. Also, the media wanted to help. Okay, this is the person they're looking for. The FBI was invited in early on, and uh, authorities said, look, we believe this guy is local, and I, saw, I believe that too. Um, it's very mm -hmm. different to see it from the set, to look at the bridge and see that person walk. It's a different thing to go there. I, I went with Kelsey. Kelsey that day that I was in her car and it's, we started to walk up on the bridge. It took about 10, 12 minutes to get there. So it's, it's in a dense forest. It's hard to get mm -hmm. to. And we start approaching it. It is massive, 63 feet high and frightening. It's an abandoned railroad that I'm scared of heights, the gaps in between. It was decrepit and, and broken wood and rotting wood. But at 13 and 14, hey, I would be right on that bridge. You don't have fear at that age. It's where you go. It's to have fun. And and I remember Becky saying to me, look, Susan, I said, yeah, they can go down there. Why not? They're away from their devices. They're outside, fresh air. My generation, that's all we did. We went outside. Mm -hmm. We drank water from a hose. That was our fun. It reminded me of my sister and I having um, woods behind our house in New Jersey. Not as dense, but your kid, you feel like it is. You feel like you have freedom. Uh, and that's what they felt. And sadly, it was ripped away from them. 
And so you mentioned the recording of the suspect. How did this audio clip influence the investigation and what emotions does it evoke in you as a journalist? How did you feel when you first heard that clip? When I first heard it at CNN Center in Atlanta, it was chilling to me. When I was there and I saw the bridge and I thought, oh my gosh, this is where it happened. And I, I saw pictures of uh, Libby in her house, framed pictures. And I interviewed Libby's um, grandmother, as I mentioned, and Abby's grandmother, Diane, went to Abby's house with her cat, Bongo. I saw her cat. I saw mm. her picture, her volleyball picture for that year. Abby and Libby were just about to start softball together. Mike said to me, Susan, they never got to play together. And he said, we were even thinking about, they were thinking about their license, getting the driver's license. But Mike said mm. to me, I just took Libby up and down the driveway, just up and down so she could steer. And he said, all of that was ripped away, all of that. So to be there, it was a, a completely different experience for me. And I believe I got close to them. I felt an immediate connection. Uh, it may be because of how kind they were, maybe because the girls reminded myself of me and my sister. There was just something that connected me to them. And at that press conference that you mentioned, it was April 22nd, 2019. I get a text from one of the law enforcement officers that said, uh, we think you should be here Monday. There's a press conference. So it was just enough time. I believe we got that on Friday to gather everyone, to get people to fly there. And uh, I sent a text. It was around Easter. I said, should we be there in person? Yes. So I knew it was important. I thought, hey, maybe they they caught the guy. Maybe. So we fly there um, the night before. I go into uh, where the presser was about to take place that morning. I was live on, on Morning Express with Robin Mead that morning. So I did about six or seven live shots about what we were anticipating. We really didn't know at that time. We file in. We have to sign in. There's volunteers that make everyone sign in. We sit up front. There's a lot. I mean, lines of photojournalists and cameras behind us. So I wanted to make sure I was sitting down so I wasn't um, in the way of anyone. Then the superintendent, Doug Carter, comes out. He looks down. He's very passionate, very dedicated to this case, a wonderful person. I mean, blood, sweat, and tears into solving this and helping those who did or who think they did. That's a sidebar on that. So we sit mm -hmm. down, and he said he wanted to thank the family, thank the media. Then he gets to it. He says, what you will hear today, we hope you will forgive us. But this is a hiccup, but we're still on it. And I'm paraphrasing here. This isn't a cold case. We're on it. We know more now. We have a witness. We're on to you. We believe you live in Delphi or have once lived here. We believe you're a local and we believe you may be in this room. Well, that was just jarring in the room, in the room where we were. So mm. I'm looking around. Mm. And when I when we were sitting down, I was kind of looking around the room and I noticed a lot of armed officers at the different entrances. I noticed that and I thought, Hmm, this is a little weird, but th maybe they're just here to listen in. Maybe it's an arrest and everyone, it's a yeah. celebratory, if you will, time. So I did notice that I hit record on my cell phone. I still have it part of the press conference and I, I put it down. And when he said that, I knew I stopped the recording. I went, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I know, I knew I was going to be live. So that's how I think. I think back to the news station, they're going to want this. I mean, this is huge. And I had spoken to people in the newsroom a couple of weeks later and they said, that everyone was glued to watching it. And that rarely happens in a newsroom. I mean, there's a lot going on. So they were all mm -hmm. watching. When that wrapped up, we did know a couple things. Oh, they unveiled a new sketch. So when I first covered the story, it looked like a sketch of an older man, 40s. 
at that press conference, the unveiling of the second sketch was what appeared to be an 18-year-old kid, really. I mean, just a young, opposite. It's not like they had any similar features. So that was perplexing for even the family members thinking, what did have we, this is what they thought. Have we been handing out the wrong flyer this whole time for two years? That's all they did was try to get someone to say, oh, I know that guy. It's my neighbor. Oh, I know this guy. It's my cousin. And they had a tip line and there were people constantly manning the tip line. In hindsight, I really believe that that's what they were hoping for. They thought, okay, a man's on the bridge. We have him walking. We have his voice. This is going to be solved. And it just never was. So the cry to the public was, someone's got to know this guy's walk. If he's in your house and you're scared, we'll protect you, but you got to turn him in. Abby and Libby need you. So after that, sure enough, I did a two-hour show with experts on CNN. Uh, some of my close friends now, uh, criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson being one of them. And uh, it was just shocking for a lot of people thinking, okay, what's next? They must know something, right? They weren't telling us much more than that. And that's a big part of the book. It's the investigators, what they were able to tell us and willing to tell us. And I heard several times from uh, Detective Holman saying, Susan, we wish we could. We can't release all the information. There is such a thing as false confessions. It happens. People come forward. Hmm. We want to keep close to the vest information that only the killer would know. Well, that, of course, created this whirlwind of conspiracy theories and accusations and People wanting to help. I believe there was a large majority that did, but they started posting side by sides. So with the younger sketch and a high school kid, oh, this is him, don't you think? Well, the authorities had to get involved and say, look, you're ruining lives. Don't do this. And I think it was the perfect storm, if you will, meaning they said, we need your help, help. But wait, we don't want you to solve it. That's obvious to some people, but not others. So they really wanted to help solve it. And it went a little too far, of course, Mm -hmm. with posting side by sides. I can't even imagine comparing in this small town. I mean, you're looking around and you're, is it this guy? Is it, I mean, that, that's scary, Susan. And you bring up a good point because right after that two hour live show, it's when you're used to doing it, it's, it's a whirlwind, but you're used to it. So I Mm -hmm. I knew who to throw to. I knew who I was interviewing. I had something in my ear. I could look down at a monitor, some notes to scribble on. Then all of a sudden it's done. It's almost like I could make the analogy of running. A s- sprinting and then you're done and you sit down and think, okay, now I can think because when you're in it, you really don't. For me, I'd done it for so long. It, it's what I felt most comfortable doing. It's the, it's the downtime that where I don't feel comfortable I've learned. So I'm sitting there and the photojournalists were wonderful from CNN and they came in, depending on where you go, um, someone will, they could be based in Chicago, let's say, and they're sent there. So these two photojournalists were not the same as the two gentlemen who were there our first visit. So I was kind of filling them in. But during the press conference, when I heard in this room, I hear the the photojournalist behind me say, in this effing room? I said, yeah. He didn't know what was to think because he didn't know the story. And even if he did, it's shocking. So afterward, I was it was us. It cleared out and the two-hour live show was over and it was just us, four of us. And all the law enforcement left. They weren't there. And I said to him, I- I'm a little afraid here. I'm, I feel weird. This doesn't feel mm-hmm. right. He said, you know, I've covered wars. 
uh, I, I've been to areas that were under ISIS control and he was, kind of, but he was serious. He was like, cause you're fine. I thought, okay, I feel, I feel safe with him here. Like he's been in a lot worse. And uh, it just was an eerie feeling saying, is he in this town still? Is he there? And once I saw the bridge, I realized they're absolutely right. There's no way that someone could be passing through and just come upon this massive bridge and happen to know that the kids had a day off and happened mm -hmm. to commit a brutal double murder that day passing through. There was much more to the story than we were getting. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could have stayed in the town overnight during that time. I don't think I could have, Susan. <laughs> I turned on all the lights. I, I did. I had more dreams than I was used to remembering. And one of them, Libby said we were killed in a barn. So then I was convinced they were killed in a barn, but it was only a dream that we had not heard nothing of a barn. So, um, but mm -hmm. I turned on the lights. I remember being in that hotel and you know, the rickety air conditioning and I turned on the TV and I tried to sleep, but I knew I had to be up the next morning because CNN wanted, I think it was on 12 hours that next day, live shot, live shot, live shot, because it was newsworthy. It's not often at a press conference where you say, you could be here. Where are you? We're coming for you. It had the theatrics of a movie, but it was mm -hmm. real. And I felt for the families, as I continue to do, um, they weren't told much. They were taken aside, I believe, about an hour before that press conference started. They heard everything on Libby's phone that the media never has. They were told about the new sketch, and they felt deflated. But as mm -hmm. they do being so strong and of course having no other choice they said okay regroup what do we do now let's start handing out this other flyer now and try to get this done mm -hmm. how did the writing process for this book impact you personally were there moments that were particularly challenging or emotionally difficult <laughs> I just it can't was, imagine it was much more difficult than I thought and my hat's off to you for who anyone who writes anything I mean I, I've written news stories of of course, maybe one or two magazine articles, but this was a different beast. It's organizing my thoughts. Um, the, when I decided to write this, it was 2020, so much had happened. No one was in custody. What I wanted to write this for was to get the experience and the story of the families. Covering mm -hmm. so many trials with HLN and CNN, we always focus on the perpetrator. And, you know, Scott Peterson, Casey Anthony, how many specials have you seen on Bundy? I mean, always them, yeah. never the families that are left in the wake of this tragedy. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write the story about the families. So um, once I started, I, I was sitting, I didn't know how to get started. That was the, the toughest part for me. But once I really sat down, gathered my notes, gathered my thoughts and really sat alone and thought about what message I wanted to convey, then it started to come. Now, mind you, it wasn't easy, an easy process because during that process, I was thinking, is this even good? Are the families going to like it? What if they don't? What if it was, it was tough, but then I had to say, okay, just keep writing because that's what I had heard and read about people who write, just keep writing, just keep doing it. And slowly, slowly, but surely it started to come together. But it, you know, there's an editing process. It's with uh, Hachette Publishing and uh, they were wonderful there. But I wasn't familiar with any of this, of writing a book. I knew how to do TV. That's it. <laughs> Not writing. In terms right. Of so they came in and the uh, edits here and there, tweaks. And I made sure I looked through it over and over and over because I wanted to make sure that there was nothing salacious about it. And there's nothing really salacious to say, but you see it out there. Just look on YouTube. You know, they, they say whatever they want. You can if you want to. And, and a lot of the people who do that, I've realized these armchair detectives aren't in it 
uh, for the correct reason. And uh, they don't usually show their face. I th- I hope, I think that's a minority. But, uh, you know, we saw with Gabby Petito, there was help and, and people wanting to assist the officers. Um, but here, I wanted to make sure that this is what the family would like from me. And um, the biggest compliment that I've ever received, it was two weeks ago, I sent the book to Kelsey. It's officially, um, it wasn't out yet, but I sent her a copy and she said, thank you so much uh, for keeping my sister's memory alive. And thank you so much for allowing me to follow my dream to write because she wrote the forward in it. She wants to tell her story too one day. I think the difference in this book of the narrative that you tell about the family, like you said, you know, you focus so, so often on the actual murders and not about the family. Those are the headlines. Being in the news business for so many years, it's about almost how these people died, not how they lived before. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I really got to know the girls as much as I possibly could. So what helped a lot was, of course, the stories from their families and um, seeing video. Uh, I remember in one particular video, Libby has a cracked watermelon and Kelsey, her sister, who I've gotten close with, was next to her. And Libby puts her hands in and it it falls open and she falls back and they, they are in hysterics laughing in the kitchen. And that was really Libby. I also have learned that she was very funny, so caring. She would leave um, sticky notes around the house for her grandmother to see that said, thank you so much, me and Kelsey love you. Just on her visor, she'd sneak them everywhere. And even after they were murdered, Becky said she put down the visor and said, grandma, I love you. It was the sticky note. And oh my gosh, I'm gonna go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. But she also gave them strength. Um, and I saw that on Facebook. I went through um, Libby's Facebook page that was hers. And now it's a memorial page for people to post um, whatever they want or jokes or inside jokes or just something to remember Abby and Libby uh, about a story that they wanted to share. And I really, truly got a sense of who she was and her aunt Tara. They were so close. And um, she would sometimes log into Tara's account as Tara and said, my favorite niece is Libby. So just the funny little <laughs> things that I, I really got to see and understand because so mm-hmm. many times, especially what I have learned, and I learned this from Joe Petito. I went to Florida to interview him. I was in his house for several hours. Just couldn't be nicer. One thing he did mention, he said, I, people are always asking me why Gabby Petito's story gets so much um, attention and press. And he said, now it's my goal. And this is really what he does now. He makes it a point to make sure with the attention he now has to have other stories that aren't talked about, talked about. So, and I've learned that people who go through such a horrific situation, a tragedy, helping others really connects them and allows them to feel like, okay, this is, this is what I can control. I can't control what happened to me. How can we help others in the process of this tragedy? And um, I found that to be true with Abby and Libby's family as well. What also stood out to me was how the families came together and decided it started as a small idea. Let's do something that we can look forward to, not what should have been, what could be. So they decided on the Abby and Libby Memorial Park, and it started as an idea of like a softball field, and it grew into something so much bigger and brighter, an amphitheater. There are charity events there. Um, their goal was that kids would be laughing there. And there's a picture of Abby mm-hmm. and Libby nearby. And it's to always remember those girls because that I found was the biggest fear. Becky said to me, my my worry is that people will forget who she was. She said, it's the little mm-hmm. things. I'll get an insurance card in the mail. 
and it won't have Libby's name on it. And at different milestones, it was senior year. And she said, I see all the girls get their own parking spaces and the graduation and the cap and gown and those missed milestones. So she said, Mm -hmm. it's her goal, her lifelong goal to make sure no one forgets about Libby. And I believe that's why Kelsey said, you know what, with this book, her memory's in there, her memory's in there, the pictures of her, who she was. Yes. That must feel so good for you to, to play a role in this, to keep the light shining. Yeah. These girls. And it does. I feel so grateful. I I truly Mm -hmm. do. Um, and that's what's difficult because as a journalist, you know, don't insert yourself in the story. It's one-on-one. It's what you learn immediately. So anytime it would get too difficult for me or what I thought was, we were around Libby's kitchen table and I started to feel myself almost crying. So I just stood up. There were a photojournalist producer, myself, uh, Kelsey, Becky, Mike. So I just kind of excused myself. No one knew, went to the restroom, like, bit the side of my cheek and thought, stop, because it's embarrassing. I don't want it to be me, 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 me. But it's also right. if, you, if you shut down your feelings for so long and if you keep doing it and keep doing it, it's going to come out somewhere. It's going to come out some way. Um, so it's good, I think, to allow yourself to feel those feelings, maybe not around the kitchen table with the family, but um, to really understand them and and feel like it's okay as a journalist to show the feelings. Maybe not mm-hmm. on the air, but you're allowed to feel because how can you not? How can you not? Mm-hmm. So has this changed, writing this book, covering the story, has this changed the way you parent your own children? <laughs> we we should ask them. We have this saying in news, um, especially the moms. You're a news mom. And the connotation there is, oh, no, because you could shelter them too much because you see everything that could happen, all of the uh-huh. bad things from, I don't know, an accident on a roller coaster. So your kids have to be free. You can't put your anxiety and stresses, and I'm telling myself this more than lecturing, onto them. I do it anyway. My mom still does it. But it's almost like, okay, you don't want to scare them too much about life, right? You just want them to experience things with being careful. And of course, that's age appropriate on when. But my son, even at age, I think five, he said, mom, you always say, be careful. I always do. Like, be careful. It's 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 ingrained. It's, it's the thinking ahead thinking, and every mom does this, right. But it can be extreme in our situations thinking, well, looking around an area, are there any vans? What could happen? Who could be there? It it can get excessive and you have to learn to kind of calm the voice. Yes. Because you know, what's possible. Yes. Ignorance sometimes can be bliss. You don't want to be naive, of course, but I think back to my mom, my mom and dad, they were considered strict back then with our curfew, but they would just say, come home when the lights went on. Where were we? They didn't know. No cell phones. (laughs) And I look back like those are the good old days because we used to, it's called, we used to call it, are you going to go down the brook? We'd go to our neighbor's house, walk there, Kim, grab her, go down to the brook and the Raritan River was going through. They were sewer pipes that were across from one side, my house to the other, our backyard, and then into the woods. And we'd spend hours there walking across my sister, friends of ours in the neighborhood. And just, I loved it down there. We felt invincible. And immediately when I saw that bridge, after I got over the gravity of it, I thought, oh my gosh, we would have loved it down here. Loved it. Who would think that their innocence would be ripped away by one person, by a person, an evil person, when they just kids, mm-hmm. the innocence there. And uh, we originally, um, back to when I first heard about this, called it the Snapchat 
murders because uh, Libby did take a picture of Abby on the bridge. It was 207, I believe, and posted it to Snapchat. So that's how we originally, that's what we called it, I, I would say. So when Brian first sent me there, it was a sign to go to Delphi. He said, remember the Snapchat murders? I said, oh yeah, now I remember. Um, but early on, the family said, look, was this, did this have anything to do with Snapchat? Did it, was it uh, catfishing or anything like that? And at uh -huh. that particular time, they told them no. Um, and, and that really opens up the investigative part of this. As I touched on earlier, it was really difficult for law enforcement because they didn't want to say anything. And then, as I told you, it snowballed in a way, especially with all the technology and all the outlets that are available today. Um, you know, at CNN, we have lawyers. It's like, what can you say? What can't? You can't implicate anyone or anything, of course. And and that's just not there on YouTube. It, it feels like uh, the Wild West. I mean, it just does. You could say whatever you, you want to. And what are the ramifications? I mean, some of them are just disgusting, naming family members. But they, I find it yeah. odd they don't show their face. So they're really kind of cowardly in that sense. Um, but law enforcement started to shut down. The more they saw, they would say, oh, this is getting ugly. Let's pull back. Let's pull back. And that may have kind of fueled the fire, if you will, in terms of what people started to say. Well, they're not saying anything. Is it this person? Is it that person? Uh, but the families always worked closely, even though um, at times they felt a little disheartened, like, okay, mm -hmm. one year, two years, three years, still nobody. Town. Okay, so you cut the town in half, less than 3,000, let's say 1,000 men. And they believe he's local and we have his walk and his image. And, and think about, well, the age range at that particular time, the second sketch was 18 to 40. It's broad, but kind of, obviously I'm not an investigator, but- there was frustrations felt by the families, obviously. Yeah, I'm but sure. They always were respectful and worked well with the investigators. They did. And Kelsey said, Susan, if I had an idea or thought, okay, oh, I thought of something, she would text the detectives and they wanted her to. So they were really close. Um, but there was some who would say, look, I don't know what's going on. And it, it was understandably so why people were frustrated saying the guy's here you got his voice and the superintendent doug carter who really put his heart and soul into this took it personally as he would um said that one day we will know he said i can't talk about being a law enforcement officer what i think i can mm -hmm. say whatever I, it doesn't mean it's real we have to say what we know and we can't say that when one day we will though we can't say that right now but one day you'll understand the complexities here he said this it's a complex and long investigation. And we still, to be honest, we still don't know. A trial date is set for January. Um, someone is in custody, Richard Allen, innocent mm -hmm. to proven guilty. His defense team recently released uh, 130 pages of documents. I mean, recently as in yesterday, um, talking about a ritualistic killing. So there's information out uh -huh. there. Is it is it to divert attention off their client? We don't know. We'll see in a court mm -hmm. of law. In a court of law, as you know, you have to show evidence. And, and we'll see if it goes on as planned in January. Um, retired cold case investigator Paul Holes has become a friend of mine, just so sharp. Um, I believe that he can see things the way others don't. Um, he himself catching the Golden State Killer after decades. So... He spoke to me about Delphi. It's one of the chapters in the book. And he said he knew right away when he went down there. He didn't know before. He wondered why he had questions before he saw the bridge. And he said, oh, this is why. Why do you go down the bridge into the trail? Oh, because there's homes here and homes here. Although it was isolated, there were a couple of homes. 
So he started to kind of understand um, maybe what this person was thinking, um, what he was like, the motivation for it. I mean, he he did say in the book that he wrote about how that did take a toll on him, but I believe he could see things differently. And he said to me, Susan, usually people like this work alone. They work alone because mm-hmm. there were rumors that it would several people, how many people were involved. And uh, I interviewed him in February for the book. And he said, of course, we don't know much right as of now. And one thing that stood out to me the most, and I was lucky enough that I've been on several panels with Abby and Libby's families um, and CrimeCon, it's called. Paul was with me in Las Vegas at CrimeCon. It sounds weird. It's not like Comic-Con. It's really about- Right. It does sound like that. It does sound weird. (laughs) It's where victims Uh go and really just a wonderful group of people coming together to support others. Maybe they need help. Maybe they have a missing child or someone in their family. So it really is a tight unit. And Paul said this to the families and I saw it resonate with Becky, Libby's grandmother. He said, look, because there were rumors at that particular time that the girls may have been catfished because there was someone claiming Mm -hmm. to be Anthony Schatz. That was not his image. That was not him. It was someone who has now been sentenced to many years behind bars. But they were concerned, like, is could that person have done it? Did the catfishing lead to this? Well, they didn't know at the time, and Becky was on stage, and Paul said, look, if that is the case, it's not your fault. She said she felt like she failed her, Libby. She felt like she failed because she didn't check her phone enough. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, these predators are good. They're very good at what they do. These are girls that are 13 and 14 years old. They might think a boy's cute. Mm-hmm. We all did it. That I mean, what's wrong? Yes. With what's wrong? No, it's nobody's fault, but this person mm-hmm. who's very good at grooming young girls or boys. Mm. It, and he also said this, look, um, what happens next is a trial. And no one was in custody at this particular time. A couple months later, someone was arrested for the double murder. No one was in custody. And he said, once someone is in custody, he said, I've learned in my experience with the Golden State Killer and the victims and the family members, there is a sigh of relief that this person can't do it to anyone else. But there's also, um, you it's grieving in a different way. It, it's not like you're euphoric and think, oh, it's done. No, because now you have the trial to get through if it does go to trial in the court system. And he said, the judicial system is not good to victims' families. It's just not. Mm. It's in the favor of the of the defense, meaning everyone has the right, has rights in court, right, right. to receive trial, right to be um, defended properly, of course, and having to show. we No one's uh, disputing that shouldn't be in place. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's difficult that what they can talk about, maybe what will come up with the girls. There's nothing really to say, but I feel like sometimes, you know, to create doubt, maybe things are said. It, it's not an easy process, he said. And he said specifically, he felt it personally because he's gotten very close to the Golden State Killer victims and families that their tactics in court that happen all the time. The mm-hmm. Someone you're defending could, let's say the trial's coming up in two days. You've spent a year waiting for this to happen, right? Because you want it to end. You want that process to end. And then he fires his attorneys. Well, then he gets an extra year to catch up, to get the attorneys caught up on what they don't know about the case. So there are tactics mm-hmm. out there. And he just said, they're going to have to rely on each other and and maybe counseling people who know something. And I do believe they are at CrimeCon, some experts there or, you know, personal counseling because it's not easy, he said. And, and I had covered trials, but I really didn't understand until he told me just how difficult it really can be. 
Yeah. Well, Susan, in closing, what do you hope the legacy of Down the Hill will be both for the families involved and for those who engage with this powerful story, the law enforcement, the journalists, you included, what are you hoping? Well, I read a review and they always say, don't read reviews because you're going to focus on the bad one and not the good one. <laughs> but True. <laughs> I, I'm proud of a few of the reviews that I read that said, this is a very different crime book, meaning I went in thinking it was going to be one thing. And then, wow, it's so much different. And I felt, I almost cried. I was in the car with my sister saying, this is what I wanted. This is what I wanted. It really is. It's to say, and look, there's an audience for that type of crime book. I didn't want that. I knew the families. I wanted the reader to understand and really get to know the girls. Um, mm -hmm. This brings me back quickly to Kim Goldman, who I met through the years and have gotten close to. She said, no one talked about Ron. They would just say, and friend. And all the focus was on the person who was arrested for it. So going back to this, it's a different perspective that I don't think is often told. And I wanted that to be um, what people got out of it. And I do take them through exactly what happened in the investigative process and the steps. But mostly it's about the girls and the families and what they did to support each other, how others supported them, and how they're still a long road ahead of them. And this could even be used as a tool or a roadmap for other families on dealing with situations like this, Susan, and helping them cope. I hope so. I found out through the years that, you know, there are parents who call each other. Uh, Gabby Tito's mm -hmm. father, he, he did say that there's been um, those in the spotlight who have had children who were murdered reach out to him. How do we do this? There's no playbook for this. There's no instructions. There's no, it, it's the most horrific thing from my perspective, and that's not much. I'm not in their shoes. I really don't truly understand the gut-wrenching feeling of that, waking up without their loved ones. But to see it, it's, uh, of course, not easy. And I think the strength they get is through each other. Mm -hmm. Okay, Susan, how can we purchase this book? Where is it? Of course, it's on uh, Amazon.com and Target and Barnes and & Noble. And again, Libby's sister, Kelsey, broke the forward in it. And that made me tear up because it's really from her heart, how she felt in the beginning, how she feels now. Um, I remember her telling me we were in Austin together. I believe it was 2021. And she was planning her wedding, about to get married. She said there was guilt at times. Like, I feel guilty for doing certain things and milestones and Libby should be here with me and she said, but finally she realized because she was so down, she didn't know if she could go on anymore. And that was before Austin. And she said, I found strength through other people who went through the same thing. And then she said, you know what, Susan, I don't think I can have a baby. It was her and I was a big table of people at dinner and only I could hear. And she said, I have to find this person who did this before I move on and do that. And um, I didn't say anything because I, I felt like she had decided that years ago. And uh I think, you know, someone was in custody and uh, she had a baby, baby girl in August. And she'll send me pictures. She sent me one yesterday of Ellie, Aww. who's adorable and always smiling, always smiling already. I said, this is the happiest baby. It's just a month and a half old. So she focuses on the, the good parts of this. You know, yesterday the documents were released. I had so many people texting me, this kind of killing, that kind of killing, him, him, him. And I thought, you know what? I'm not even going to read the documents right now. I don't need to know them. I'm not the expert on the shows right now. I'm not... And at that moment, Kelsey sent me a picture of her baby. And I thought, you know what? Good for them. Don't dive into these. It, it will be tried in court, but all the other stuff is noise. And it's never going to bring back Abby and Libby. 
And in closing, Becky said to me, look, Susan, I don't really know what justice looks like, um, but I do know they'll never be back. They'll never be back with me. It's justice for this never happening again. Yes, yes. And that family needed that baby, Susan. Oh, that family needed that baby. baby. Yes. <laughs> I just, they did. I believe it brings new life yeah. and new hope. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, how can we follow you? Where can we find you? Instagram, um, Facebook, you name it. I have to get better. I'm on Instagram a lot, almost too much. <laughs> I have to get better at, at, uh, at posting more. And, uh, but yeah, that's a goal of mine for the next year. Read more, scroll less. But yeah, yes. I would love if you, if you want to reach out and ask me anything, anyone's welcome to on Instagram. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Thank Susan, you. for joining so good us. Good to see you. Good to see you, Thanks Susan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for joining me on this deeply insightful episode of Life Coach BFF Show. Your support and encouragement mean the world to me as we navigate the powerful stories that shape our lives and shape our world. I hope you found inspiration in Susan's telling of the story of the Delphi murders. This is the perfect time to purchase her book. It makes a wonderful gift. I hope that you will do that. I love you. Jesus loves you even more. Keep shining. Keep loving. Keep being you. And I can't wait to be with you again soon. Till next time, friends.